The potholder makes her long for the thousandth time that year to talk to her mother. She wants them to laugh together at the impossibility of the mad scientist to hear her mother say that the potholder had horses instead of spurs, saddles instead of hats, that she has no need for this old anxiousness, the tension between needing to believe and knowing that she will be hurt for it. Daughters, this week on Selected Shorts. I get dizzy and fatigued if I step off the linoleum trail in department stores, but my mother bushwhacks her way through that dense landscape of fabric with her usual sense of direction, empty sleeves swinging in her wake. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. Parents and children are the general subjects of the stories on this program. But each also has something quite specific to say to us. For example, in Ivan E. Coyote's charming No Bikini, we learn that it's never too early to defy gender norms. Becca Blackwell performs No Bikini. Hello. I had a sex change once when I was six years old. The lion's pool where I grew up smelled like every other swimming pool everywhere. That's the thing about pools. Same smell. Doesn't matter where you are. It was summer swimming lessons. It was a little red badge with white trim we were all after. Beginners age five to seven. My mom had bought me a bikini. It was one of those little girl bikinis, a two-piece, I guess you would call it. The top part fit like a tight cut-off t-shirt, red with blue squares on it. The bottoms were longer than panties, but shorter than shorts, blue with red squares. I'd tried it on the night before when my mom got home from work and found that if I raised both my arms up completely above my head too quickly, the top would slide up over my flat chest and people could see my, you know what. (laughs) You'll have to watch out for that my mother had stated, her concern making lines in her forehead. Maybe I should have gotten the one piece, but all they had was yellow and pink left, and you don't like yellow either, do you? Pink was out of the question. We had already established this. So the blue and red two-piece it was going to have to be. I was an accomplished tomboy at the time, so I was used to hating my clothes. It was so easy the first time that it didn't even feel like a crime. I just didn't wear the top part. There were lots of little boys getting changed with their mothers and nobody noticed me slipping out of my brown cords and striped t-shirt and padding, bare-chested out to the poolside alone. Our swimming instructor was broad-shouldered and walked with her toes pointing out. She was a human bullhorn bellowing all instructions to us and punctuating each sentence with sharp blasts on a silver whistle which hung about her bulging neck on a leather bootlace. All right, beginners, everyone line up at the shallow end. Boys here, girls here. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Boys on the left, girls on the right. It was that simple, and it only got easier after that. I wore my trunks under my pants and changed in the boys' room after that first day. The short form of the birth name my parents bestowed on me was androgynous enough to allow my charade to proceed through the entire six weeks of swimming lessons. Six weeks of boyhood. 
six weeks of bliss. It was easier not to be afraid of things like diving boards and cannonballs and backstrokes when nobody expected you to be afraid. It was easier to jump into the deep end when you didn't have to worry about your top sliding up over your ears. I didn't have to be ashamed of my naked nipples because I had not covered them up in the first place. The water running over my shoulders and back felt simple and natural and good. Six weeks lasts a long time when you're six years old. So in the beginning, I guess I thought the summer would never really end. That grade two is still an age away, and I guess I thought that swimming lessons would continue far enough into the future that I didn't need to worry about a report card day. Or maybe I didn't think at all. He is not afraid of water over his head, my mom read aloud in the car on the way home. <laughs> my dad was driving, eyes straight ahead on the road. He can't tread water without a flotation device? Her eyes were narrow and hard, and she kept trying to catch mine in the rearview mirror. Your son has successfully completed his beginners and intermediate badges and is ready for his level one? I stared at the toes of my sneakers and said nothing. <laughs> now excuse me, young lady, but would you like to explain to me just exactly what you have done here? How many people have you lied to? How have you been parading about all summer half naked? But how could I explain to her that it wasn't what I had done, but what I didn't do? That I hadn't lied because no one had asked and that I had never, not once felt naked. Ah, I can't believe you. You can't be trusted with a two-piece. <laughs> I said nothing the whole way home. There was nothing to say. She was right. I couldn't be trusted with a two-piece. Not now and not then. Becca Blackwell read No Bikini by Ivan E. Coyote. I'm Cynthia Nixon. In a brief encounter that we won't forget, a childless woman is torn between her aging parents and her uncertain future. The story was presented as part of a program considering motherhood, and it was introduced from the stage at Symphony Space by the author Celeste Ng. Even if we're childless, we still have a relationship to motherhood, to the children that we do not have, whether by circumstance or by choice, to our own mothers and the ways that they are or are not present in our lives. Catherine Chekovich's story, The World with My Mother Still in It, holds this often overlooked aspect of motherhood to the light. In it, a simple shopping trip with her aging mother brings the narrator face to face with her own decision not to have children and her mother's mortality, and of course, her own. I'm at the stage of life now where I'm simultaneously a mother and a daughter. I have a young son and my mother is still alive. So I'm constantly looking at the world with a kind of double vision. What did I learn from one that I can pass on to the other? I look back on my own childhood as a pattern for what to do and sometimes what I can do better with my son. But now, as my mother ages, I find myself needing to parent her in ways that I really hadn't expected. 
What I found really moving in the world with my mother still in it is the way it carefully maps your relationship with your mother and how that map can fundamentally change as you become an adult. When our mothers are gone, what do we keep from them? What gets passed on and what doesn't, especially if we don't have children of our own? I can see where this is going, the narrator thinks at one point, as she and her mother begin to fall into their old patterns. We always think we know after so many years, but when it's someone as close as our mother, how clearly can we really see? That was Celeste Ng. Now we'll hear Philippa Sue, who was in the original cast of Hamilton, perform The World With My Mother Still In It by Katherine Chetkovich. My parents and I are drinking watery Tom Collinses and talking over the sound of 60 minutes. Several pills are scattered near the corner of my father's placemat, and he occasionally reaches down to rub his leg, which has been cramping and giving him trouble lately. My mother, who used to manage sit-down dinners for 40, brings out a bowl of snacks made from various breakfast cereals tossed with seasoning salt. (laughs) It's a recipe she clipped from one of the health and longevity magazines my father subscribes to in her name. Well, my father accuses me. You look good. How's Stephen? He's fine. I told Stephen he did not have to come along with me tonight, a test he failed by taking me at my word and staying home to listen to the game on the radio. (laughs) You look good too. I hear myself talking in what Stephen calls my Donna Reed voice. Both of you. My father tilts his head toward my mother. She's the one, he says, the constitution of a horse. He rubs his fingers over his knee in a slow circle. My mother rolls her eyes. Oh, I know, she says. You'll never guess who we heard from today. I look from one to the other. My father's attention is back on the television. Who? Ray. My Ray? My mother has the unnerving habit of keeping in touch with my old boyfriends. And I I turn around suddenly, half expecting him to come walking through the swinging kitchen door. When he and Anna got married, Stephen and I went to the wedding, but that must be four years ago now, and we've fallen out of touch. Wasn't he the one who totaled your car? My father keeps my exes straight with these Homeric epithets. The two-timing one, the one who always called collect, For the millionth time, Dad, that was not his fault. He was rear-ended. My father waves this information away. As I recall, he didn't pay you a cent for your troubles. Dad, it wasn't his fault. Besides, the other person's insurance paid for everything. Good thing. My father sniffs and turns back to the television. I look at the clock. I have been here half an hour. (laughs) Anyway, my mother says, he and his wife just had a baby. We got the announcement in the mail today. For a moment, I have that strange, startled feeling you get when you're staring at the phone and it suddenly rings. That's great, I hear myself say, great. Stephen and I talk about children sometimes, but talking seems to be our version of actually having them. And I can't exactly say I want them, but as the youngest in my family and with no children of my own, I do sometimes feel like the caboose, hurtling forward and facing backward, 
watching the empty track behind me run off and disappear through all that open, dusty landscape. Poor Ray, I'm sure he has absolutely no idea, my mother says. My father, with his motto, expect the worst and you won't be disappointed, is considered the cynic in the family, but it's my mother, that realist, who always puts temporary happiness in a long-term context. I thought I'd get them something, she says to me now. D do you want to go in on something with me? She let him walk away from a wrecked car, isn't that enough? <laughs> My father, clearly enjoying himself, scoops up a handful of the little cereal pillows. By eight, dinner is over and the dishes are almost done. One of my parents' regular programs is about to come on, and my father hovers in the kitchen doorway, working a toothpick around in his mouth and glancing at the clock. My mother finishes wiping the counters and says, okay, with the exhaling satisfaction of someone crossing the last chore off a list. She unties her apron, which she has had on since I arrived, and disappears into the pantry. My father steps over and pulls a couple of folded $20 bills from his pocket. Here, he says holding them toward me for gas. Dad, you don't need to do that, I say. But he holds the money there, pointed at my heart, and I take it. <laughs> my mother returns with a bag of oatmeal cookies in one hand and a small jar in the other. Stephen likes these fancy mustards, doesn't he? She says. From the front door, they watch me walk out to the car. Tell Stephen to come along next time, my mother calls out. Not if he's working. My father adds, you tell him if he has to work, we understand. After the years I spent with film students and drummers between bands, my father still can't quite believe I married a man with a job. <laughs> Outside, the light is just beginning to fade, and the air is still soft and warm. I drive home with the windows rolled down to let in the summer evening, the smell of watered concrete, chlorine from someone's pool, a sudden sweet blossom my father, an unlikely gardener, would know the name of. I wish for things without knowing what they are. At home, Stephen is lying on the couch in the darkening room listening to the game. His head and feet in socks that are wearing at the heel are propped on the arms of the couch. On the radio, the Giants' middle reliever gives up a double and runs scores. I have trouble, for a second, recognizing this as the life I have chosen. But then Stephen moves over to make room for me on the couch. He takes my hand and he asks me how I'm doing. A walk, then a single, and then the manager takes what announcers always refer to as that long, slow trip to the mound. I can feel the length of Stephen's body next to mine. I rest my hand on his thigh. Soon it's almost completely dark, except for the tiny red lights on the stereo receiver. I suddenly remember that it was Ray who taught me the boy's pleasure of listening to a game in the dark, and I later taught it to Stephen. In the darkness, Stephen's body is a kind of palimpsest on which I can make out the faint, erased marks of the few important ones who came before. Ray was the first of these, so he became the prototype for all the handsome, preoccupied men I fell in love with after. The ones who, when we were out, would pull me close and kiss me on the forehead while they looked over my head at something down the street. <laughs> a year or so after we broke up, I saw Ray at a party 
that we had both gone to alone. I was still so young that even I thought of myself as young. I remember a feeling I had then that the cement of my life had not even been poured, much less begun to set. A couple of hours into the party when I saw Ray go into the bathroom, I slipped in after him. He hesitated for a moment, then stepped over to the toilet and unzipped his pants. Later that night, we ended up back at his apartment and made that familiar, distracted love once more. But it was the ease of sitting on the bathroom counter while he peed, not the sex, that reminded me of my heart by breaking it. I've had a hard time getting over you, he said, playing with my hair in the darkness of his bedroom. I hope to God you don't intend to put us both through that again. That seems to be my special gift, getting men to throw me the keys on condition that I won't take them anywhere. My arm's asleep, Stephen says, pulling it from under my neck. It's the eighth inning, and the game is now comfortably out of reach. It's just a matter of nailing the last pieces of the loss into place. Ray and his wife just had a baby, I say into the darkness. And Stephen, God love him, says, Ray who? I lock my eyes on the back of my mother's flowered overblouse as we tack our way toward the baby department. I get dizzy and fatigued if I step off the linoleum trail in department stores, but my mother bushwhacks her way through that dense landscape of fabric with her usual sense of direction, empty sleeves swinging in her wake. <laughs> it is not too late for you, you know, she says, shuffling expertly through the tiny outfits on the sale rack. Oh, this is cute. She checks the price tag. Oh, well, not that cute. She moves to another rack. Oh, mom. I squeeze a grunting pig and a quacking duck in conversation. I am doing what I always do when I go shopping with my mother, waiting for her to make up our mind. <laughs> I, I, I'm just talking, she says. I'm not saying anything. I never told my mother about the abortion I had with Ray. And this moment, among the pastels and friendly animals at Macy's, suddenly seems as close to telling her as I'm likely to get. But it's like spotting the exit for a place you always meant to go while you're on the freeway headed somewhere else. He always seemed like a lost soul, my mother says cheerfully. Maybe fatherhood will bring him back to Earth. We finally settle on a bright yellow outfit and a cow with big black stitches for eyelashes. On our way back across the store, we pull up at a table piled with sweaters, and my mother tries to buy me one. Or, or would you rather have something else, she says, when I look at them without picking one up. A skirt, maybe. And I can see where this is going, so I set down the shopping bag to pick up a sweater, and when I reach down again for the handles, the cow's harlequin face is looking up at me from its nest of tissue paper, for a strange, mixed-up moment, I imagine my mother snapping Ray's new daughter into her little yellow play suit while my father stands a few feet away, making funny noises and congratulating himself on getting the baby to smile. We buy the sweater and cross the mall into a coffee place my mother likes. After we sit down, she leans across the table conspiratorially. That man over there goes to my church. His wife died last year. Even sitting down, the man looks 
unsteady. He stirs his coffee with a badly shaking hand. He looks like someone you would hate to be behind on the road. Is he okay, I say? What do you mean? I shrug. He seems old. He's younger than your father. Before we leave, my mother gets up to go to the restroom. On the way, she stops at the old man's table. He starts to get up, but she touches his shoulder lightly and he sinks back down. He gestures to the chair across from him and my mother smiles, but gestures back to me. He takes her hand in both of his. <laughs> if something were to happen to my father, I find myself thinking, this guy would be standing in line. <laughs> the word stepfather jumps incongruously into my mind. Finally, my mother heads down the hallway to the restrooms, and I get up to pay the check. The cashier, a dark-haired beauty, is busy flirting with the young man piloting the espresso machine. Excuse me, I say. Sure, she says, taking the slip without looking at me. She has rings on six or seven fingers, and her eyes are outlined in black. And I feel a brief stab of regret that when I was the age to wear that look myself, I was convinced that makeup and too much jewelry were the tools of the patriarchy. After I pay, I move toward the door to wait for my mother. Outside, in the filtered light of the mall, kids stand around with their arms crossed and women wheel by with their strollers. A few minutes later, when my mother has still not appeared, I turn back toward the tables to look for her. The old man is gone, and there's my mother, standing at the mouth of the hallway, searching the room of tables. And when she does not step forward, but just stands there holding her purse in both hands, I realize she's lost. Mom, mom, I hurry toward her. I can see her start to smile at the sound of my voice. When she spots me, her shoulders drop in relief. Oh, that was the strangest thing, she says as soon as I reach her, picking the moment up and putting it carefully in the past. I, I just got completely turned around when I came out of the ladies' room, I guess. Are you okay? Oh, oh, yes, yes, I'm fine. You, you know how it is when everything suddenly looks unfamiliar. <laughs> I do not say what I'm thinking, and neither does she. I move both the shopping bags to one side, and I take hold of her hand with my free one. Once we get outside, she gives my hand a squeeze, and let's go. I'm not going to say anything to Dad about that, and I, I don't want you to either, she says. About what? Right, she says. We're crossing the hot parking lot toward the car. After the banners and fountains and piped-in music of the mall, the asphalt and glare outside seem like part of an essential biblical landscape. The stiff twine handles of the shopping bags cut into my fingers. The coffee and the sugar have made me jumpy, my feet are hot, I feel tired and cranky, and I can sense my mother, that peculiar love of my life, starting to slip off one edge of the world, and, and the children I am not going to have, those cherubic monsters, slipping off the other. Almost there, my mother says as the car comes into view. We're almost there.
Philippa Sue read The World with My Mother Still in It by Catherine Chetkovich. I'm Cynthia Nixon. After a brief break, A Family at the Zoo. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this show, we're listening to stories about family relationships. Three generations are at the zoo in Caitlin Horrock's story. The visit opens up old wounds, but it also restores old joys. We look on as the characters look at the animals, hoping to learn something about themselves. Kate Walsh performed at the zoo at the Puddinghead Festival. At the orangutan dome, the grandfather purchases a plastic cup in the shape of an orangutan head. He offers his grandson a sip, then he slips behind a tree with a cup, and afterwards the boy isn't allowed to drink from it. The boy begs for his own. Eight dollars for a soda and a plastic head, his mother thinks. The flesh and blood orangutan is dignified and bored. Its size and its body deflates. The family turns toward a glass case labeled Fennec Fox. Look, the grandfather says, weasels. (laughs) The foxes are tiny chihuahuas with gold fur and satellite dish ears. Elephant weasels can hear things happening in space, the grandfather says to the boy. They can hear when your tummy rumbles, and they think how much they like little boys to snack on. (laughs) The boy clutches his grandfather's hand. He believes nearly everything anyone tells him. He has large, serious eyes and a look of constant apprehension that makes it easy for his mother to forget his growing size, that he is too old now for the collapsible stroller she has brought in case he becomes tired. His legs dangle whenever she straps him in with the juice boxes and snacks. You know what their favorite foods are? The grandfather asks. Everyone standing at the enclosure knows because the label lists them. Plants, small rodents, lizards, insects. Elephant weasels love roast beef, the grandfather says, and key lime pie and kid stew. 
He picks up the boy to give him a better view. The people at the enclosure decide they do not care enough to bother saying anything. Let the foxes be weasels. What does it hurt? The mother does not share their indifference. She grinds her teeth when her father speaks. Her whole life he has been telling these stories, and there was once a time she believed them. As a child, she gave show-and-tell presentations on birds that turned out not to exist. <laughs> on fictive countries whose names were sexual innuendo, she was too young to understand. She was marked down, taken aside by concerned teachers. She still winces at those old humiliations, her own credulity. She has promised herself that her son will grow up on firmer footing. The grandfather has one hand around the boy and the other around his drink. He gestures with a cup and the orangutan's head smacks the glass. The fox pricks their ears toward the sound. Someday, the mother thinks, her father will break her son's gullible little heart. Let's see something bigger, he says. This zoo got any rhinos? The mother is a patent lawyer. Her father is in town for the week visiting, and she is using a vacation day rather than leave him alone with her son. <laughs> she is supposed to be preparing an infringement suit related to proprietary athletic surfacing, patented types of artificial turf and running track. Her husband is a dermatologist, and they will always have enough money, the lawyer and the doctor. On the way to the rhinos, the family passes the capybara habitat. What do they eat? The boy asks. Fritos, <laughs> the grandfather says. But these might do. He flings a handful of chips over the fence, a new kind of Doritos that were for sale in the orangutan dome. Mystery flavored and slightly green, the chips land in the moat and the capybaras turn their heads to watch. The chips start to dissolve and the capybaras disappear into the reeds. The boy is sad to see them go. The boy's favorite television shows are all on Animal Planet, and he sobs piteously when anything dies. His favorite stories are all fairy tales. He likes Dora the Explorer and dislikes Bob the Builder. He ties ribbons around the necks of his stuffed animals. It has occurred to his parents that the boy might turn out to be gay and that these are the early signs. He is who he is, they tell themselves, whoever that turns out to be. The boy's grandfather finds this repellent. After the capybaras comes safari land. Giraffe, the son says. When his grandfather points out the neck monsters, his mother wants to cheer. Sure, sure, I recognize them now. We rode them in the war, the grandfather explains. In fact, he has not been in any war. <laughs> he enlisted after Korea and spent two years in Fort Greeley, Alaska. He tells war stories like it's expected of him, like he doesn't know any other way to be an old man, a grandfather. Giraffes sure can move, gallop like motherfuckers. <laughs> the boy was too excited last night to sleep, and his mother read to him from the big book of amazing animal behavior to calm him. There is an illustration of an antelope cleaning its nose with its tongue that fascinates and shocks the boy. Sometimes at night he thinks of this picture, the animal with its tongue and its nose. This zoo has several antelopes, but none of them are picking their noses. The boy is disappointed. 
There are oryx, gazelles, cape hunting dogs, a cheetah. It is midday and most of the animals are sleeping. The boys' book explains that elephants are social animals, that the individuals in a family love each other very much. Here at the zoo, he notices that the elephants are caged separately, snorting and kicking at one another. The boy asks his mother why. A sign explains that the elephants are mentally ill. They are seeing an elephant therapist and taking anti-anxiety medication, but there is some doubt as to whether they will ever be cured. The mother does not want to explain this to her son. She thinks that lawyers are supposed to be better at prevarication, at thinking on their feet, but that has never been the kind of lawyering she was good at. She is good at proprietary athletic surfaces. <laughs> it is difficult, however, to stay very interested in athletic surfaces. This is what makes her grateful for the mad scientist who keeps soliciting her counsel in regard to a temporal transportation device he invented. He's something different, at least. I have discovered how to circumvent the problems of the Blinovich limitation effect and the Novikov self-consistency principle, he wrote in his first letter, sent registered mail. You're the only one I can trust. This technology has to stay in the right hands. The lawyer has no idea why her hands were the right ones, the trusted ones, but there she was, holding the blueprints. A time machine, the secretary said matter-of-factly as they watched her unroll the diagrams on a large table in the conference room. That's a new one. The secretaries take his packages directly to her office now, lurking until she opens them. The first one was a silver gravy boat. I successfully impersonated a member of the King Edward VII's household staff and served him gravy in 1901. Regrettably, I had to abscond with the item to have proof, thus the price of progress. I hope you do not think me a common criminal. She has called the other patent law firms in the city, but no one else has been receiving anything stranger than usual. Someone sent us schematics for wings, another lawyer offered. The Daedalus 3000? Think it's the same guy? In the mother's silence, the grandfather steps in. He can understand what the elephants are saying, he says. He gets elephants, like he gets elephant weasels. He comprehends their growls of discomfort and anxiety. They had a fight this morning, the grandfather says, over their toys. They're sulky now, but they'll come around. The only toys the boy sees are tangles of knotted rope, a funnel of food on a post, a pile of hay and some rocks. The boy thinks of his dentist's waiting room with its few highlights magazines and many toothless children. They waggle their loose fangs at the boy whose own teeth are still small and white and planted firmly in his jaw. And then they ruin the hidden pictures by coloring in what's hidden. The grandfather's explanation makes perfect sense to the boy, and he is curious about what else his grandfather knows. The boy points expectantly at a gazelle. Most of the time, animals don't say much worthwhile, the grandfather explains. Anteaters just say, ants, 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 ants. <laughs> and owls say, fly, hunt, fly. And mice say, I'm small, I'm frightened, oh no, an owl, I'm frightened, slurp. 
Ants, 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 the little boy whispers on the way to the next enclosure, making a long nose with his arm. He waves the anteater snout in front of him. You want to go back to the elephants? His mother guesses. The boy is disappointed in her. Anteater, he explains. The mad scientist has started writing, for your eyes only, on the envelopes. Be careful, the secretaries say. Could be anthrax. In a padded envelope was a single bullet casing. I saw this shot fired in 1811 during the expulsion of the Hoja tribe from the Zierveld. He sent a pink skirt writing, this may look like a typical flounced crimplin skirt from the 1960s, but I, in fact, purchased this item in the year 2206, when mid-20th century fashions enjoy a blessedly brief vogue. 2207 will be all about ponchos. She has found herself looking, really looking over the blueprints. The machine isn't familiar, not a DeLorean or Bill and Ted's phone booth or Doctor Who's police box or any chips she recognizes from Star Trek or Star Wars or H.G. Wells. It is simply a smooth metal tube that does not seem somehow like something a crazy person would design. She has asked her husband if dermatology holds such surprises. He shrugs. I didn't know how many mole checks I'd do. <laughs> he said, everyone's worried about skin cancer. Her father has had a cancer on his cheekbone and one on the top of his left ear. The ear is scarred neatly over, but the cheek cancer was recent, and there's still a square white bandage taped across the furrow the doctors dug. They offered to take a skin graft from his thigh to patch it, but he refused. As a landscaper, he took satisfaction in his working man's tan and powerful shoulders. He retired several years ago, pain in his back, sore knees and elbows. Now the alcohol keeps him loose. He does not like the way his body feels when he is sober. He does not like the way the air touches his cheek when he changes his bandage, the way it brushes something private. Hey kid, the grandfather says, do you know why lions eat raw meat? The boy shakes his head, because they don't know how to cook. <laughs> the mother rolls her eyes, her son blinks. Why do birds fly south for the winter, Hornswoggle? Too far to walk. <laughs> when the grandfather isn't calling the boy Tyke or Junior or Hey Kid, he calls him Hornswoggle. No one has any idea why. What's black and white and red all over? A zebra who didn't look both ways. <laughs> Which side of a bird has the most feathers? The outside. The mother is surprised at how many jokes her father knows. <laughs> how much space are they taking up? She imagines him shriveling into a pile of weazened bones, a pour of whiskey, and a hundred knock-knock jokes. At her mother's wake last year, he told a dirty joke to the women gathered around casseroles in the kitchen. It involved the Pope, Bill Clinton, her dead mother, and a donkey. <laughs> she will never forgive him this. The most recent package from the mad scientist contained a bolo tie and a potholder, no note. The bolo tie was a mystery. The potholder was a bigger mystery. 
printed with little cowboy hats and spurs, it looked exactly like one that had hung in her childhood kitchen for years. The potholder makes her long for the thousandth time that year to talk to her mother. She wants them to laugh together at the impossibility of the mad scientist to hear her mother say that the potholder had horses instead of spurs, saddles instead of hats, that she has no need for this old anxiousness, the tension between needing to believe and knowing that she will be hurt for it, made to look ignorant or gullible. She doesn't know who else she can talk to. Her colleagues would mock her, her son would blink at her, her husband might say something about moles. The mad scientist has been telephoning the firm every day. Someone's going to have to call him back, the secretaries have said. Someone, meaning her. If she talked to her father, he would. She doesn't know what her father would do. Mix a whiskey and a Coke in an orangutan head and tell her that if she were less concerned with potholders, she might raise a son who was more of a man. The grandfather is thinking about dinner. His son-in-law is picking up Chinese carryout, and the grandfather is looking forward to the Kung Pao chicken and Mushu pork and the other dishes his grandson will whine about because they smell funny until the grandfather eats the boy's share. Back at home, the grandfather has been eating poorly. He recently read an item in the paper about someone who stopped leaving the house after his wife of 60 years died. The man ate everything in the fridge, then the freezer, then the cupboard. He ate the last jar of pimentos, and then he lay down to die. The grandfather has to leave his house to go to the liquor store anyway, so he picks up white bread and peanut butter, corn chips, ice cream, the grocery is run by a couple whose family still lives in Afghanistan, and the absence of anyone to worry over in an immediate practical way, they express concern for him. Vegetables, they say. You need vegetables, sir. The mother unfolds a map to look for the anteaters. They're back in the jungle experience near the capybaras. The mother charts a return trip through the frozen north and harsh deserts where life fights to survive. She shows her son the route and asks if he is tired, if he needs to use the stroller. The boy shakes his head. Already in spring, the polar bear is wilting. The arctic fox is turning brown. The penguins torpedo acrobatically through glass-walled water. Look at them playing, the mother says. Don't they look like they're having fun? She's holding the boy's hand as she points, so the boy looks up to find his own fist punching the air. It'd be pretty great to be a penguin, wouldn't it? The boy thinks about this. He knows already that an animal's life is not always as simple or carefree as it seems. On his favorite program, Growing Up Walrus, the zookeepers brought fish for the baby walrus's birthday, but the grown-up walruses stole it and ate it all. <laughs> the family walks through the desert. Coyotes pace back and forth. The javelinas wallow amongst heads of lettuce, carrots, and celery. From the side, they are broad, hairy pigs. As the family passes, they turn, and from the front appear alarmingly narrow, their faces long and their legs close set. The front of their habitat is decorated with plastic cutouts of rattlesnakes, cacti, cowboys on horseback. Do you remember mom's old potholder? The mother asked her father. What? The potholder she had for years with the little hats and spurs on it? Potholder? I don't know. She said you bought it for her out west on your honeymoon. Hell, I don't remember. A potholder? Yes, Dad, a potholder. 
There's a long silence. What's black and white and can't get through a revolving door? Never mind. A penguin with an arrow through its head. I didn't ask. Why do you want to know about a potholder? The little boy stops them somewhere between desert and jungle in front of the grizzly bear. The bear is sleeping but wakes up long enough to defecate, his hind end facing the audience. The bear and the humans watch. Feces dribble down the wall into the ditch that keeps them separated. Then the bear goes back to sleep, his performance over. The boy watches in awe and whispers, gross. <laughs> Nothing, the mother tells the father. Forget it. I just wanted to know if I was going crazy. You're not crazy, the little boy says quietly down there at the end of her arm. Hornswoggle's right, her father says. I didn't raise crazy. You didn't raise anything the mother says, and regrets it. She is a lawyer, and her husband is a doctor, and they have an attractive house and a serious, credulous son. Why is it still so important to her to be angry? The grandfather is dented more than hurt. He's already looking at this moment from a certain remove. The orangutan head is buoyant in his hand. Sun pours through it and makes a splotch of light on the ground. I didn't mean that, his daughter says. I remember the potholder. Really? Maybe. Spurs and hats? What happened to it? Your mother threw it out, far as I remember. It was older than you, got dirty. It was a potholder. Why? The woman looks at her father. What doesn't entertain him he finds uninteresting, easy to dismiss but he's always found ways to make his daughter amusing. He'd thought she was a funny child, the stories he told and the way she'd believed them. Even the way she got scared of him sometimes when a cheerful drunk turns sour or when she decides she didn't want to play along. He once dropped a banana peel in front of her when she stepped decorously over it, shoved her to the ground. Slip, goddammit, he said and laughed as her rear end smacked hard against the floor. No reason, she says, just thought of it. The javelina cage. It was a gift, he confirms. I gave it to your mother. He wants this statement, the old gesture to carry weight it cannot bear. He wants it to communicate something it does not, or maybe it says plenty. Who gives his beloved a potholder on their honeymoon? We laughed about it, he wants to add to make sure he is understood. We thought the Western stuff was funny, all the turquoise and headdresses and belt buckles. Your mom bought me a bolo tie. Not to wear, she knew I wouldn't, just to keep. You wouldn't have ever seen it. It's in a box in my sock drawer, and it hurts now to look at. The father looks at his daughter until she looks at the grizzly bear. It is still asleep. She leans toward it, putting her hands on the fence. Her father looks at them her elegant fingers and the veins beginning to show beneath the skin. He wishes he had not noticed this about his daughter, her veins, not because they make him feel old, he feels old all the time, but because they mean his daughter is aging, that she will end the way her mother did. He will not be there to see it, but his grandson will, barring accident, barring a violation in the normal order of events. He looks away from his daughter's hands and asks, Where's Hornswoggle? 
The boy is let go of his mother's hand. The boy is missing. His mother whirls in such panic that the grizzly raises its head. The mother is calling and calling and running, and the grandfather picks up the things she has left at the fence, the collapsible stroller and the bag of snacks. The man thinks of the boy's soft little legs. How far could he have gotten? Good for you, the man even thinks, showing a little gumption. He watches his daughter run ahead and then circle back to the penguins and coyotes. He imagines that she's thinking not so much of distance or human predators, but of the animals, of the primeval plight of a human boy in the wild. He, he tries to picture the unlikely series of events it would take for his grandson to end up drowned in the penguin pool or eaten by coyotes, and he begins to laugh. The mother runs back from the Arctic and the desert, and when she sees her father laughing, she could kill him. He obviously finds this funny, this crisis, and any decent person would respond to with concern. She wants nothing more in that moment and then to upend him into the grisly ditch where the bear can disembowel him. The man watches his daughter hate him and says to her, he's at the anteater. This is all of a sudden a fact comforting and obvious. The mother is still imagining the orangutan cup sailing into the rocky enclosure along with her father, the bear licking up the drink as a digestif. She runs empty-handed toward the anteater. The old man follows with the bag and the stroller. The boy is too short to see over the fence, so he is crouched at its base looking at the anteater between the rails. The anteater has a baby that rides on her back as she circles the enclosure. The boy is waggling his arm in front of his face and chanting, ants, ants, ants. There are two human families at the enclosure, and both have assumed that the boy belongs to the other one. <laughs> Everyone is startled when his mother rushes up, shouting and grabs the boy from behind. The boy, terrified, accidentally hits himself in the face with his own arm. One of the other family's babies starts crying. The anteater stops her circling to secret her child in a wooden shelter. The boy is startled and frightened, and his nose stings where he hit it. And now the anteater is going away, and he is crying. His mother clutches him harder and presses their heads together until the boy's skull hurts. The grandfather arrives, hoping he is forgiven now for laughing, but he can see in his daughter's eyes as she looks at him that he is not. The boy is still sobbing, wriggling now, trying to get down. Put him down, the grandfather says. He wants to get down. His daughter is still rocking the boy. She is usually so calm, so businesslike, it is frustrating to see her undone by a boy watching an anteater. Is this what it would take for her to consider him redeemable, this blind, ridiculous panic? Let him down, the grandfather says. And his daughter ignores him, and he thinks he could perhaps make his daughter understand if the boy would just shut up. Stop fucking crying, the grandfather yells. Just stop it. Everyone quiets. But the grandfather can't remember now what he'd planned to fill the silence. The straw rattles emptily around the orangutan head as he searches for something to say. You think the anteater wants to hear that? You think it's got anywhere else it can go? All these animals are stuck here for your benefit, kid. So shut up and get down off your mother and learn something. As soon as the outburst is over, both mother and grandfather wait for it to shatter the boy completely, but instead he stops crying because his grandfather has given him something to think about. 
As his mother lowers him to the ground, he looks for the anteater in her small, dusty shelter. The boy thrusts his arm through the fence rail and opens and closes his hands. He thinks about being on the other side of the bars and how the animals never get to go anywhere, not ever. He thinks of all his favorite television shows, the walruses of growing up walrus and the meerkats of meerkat manor and the crocodiles of the crocodile hunter. Are those animals trapped too? He begged for the zoo and the zoo is a terrible place. The boy begins to cry again. The mother hugs him, tries to get him to drink some juice, but he can't stop. His chest heaves and snot runs from his nose. She sighs and opens the collapsible stroller and straps him in and says, it's time to go home, honey. People turn to watch them pass, the old man and the woman and the sobbing boy whose body is too large for the stroller. Other parents shake their heads and think that if they were their child, he would be better behaved. A school group waiting for a bus outside, and one of the chaperones audibly clucks her tongue as the family passes. Fuck you, the grandfather tells her. <laughs> His daughter looks back at him and smiles, and the grandfather, for a moment, feels bathed in light. She turns away and reaches for her shoulder, but the hand he raises holding his drink and the other is holding her bag and both feel suddenly heavier. He weighs the cup in his palm and knows wistfully that the drink remains the best, most pleasure-giving thing he will experience that day or the day after or the day after that. He will see giraffes and he will hug his grandson and his daughter will smile at him and he will seize his mind on that orangutan cup and he will go to bed and he will wake up so he can have another. This is better than having no reason to wake up at all. After he flies home, the months will pass until eventually his daughter will feel obligated to invite him for another visit and he will feel obligated to go. He will hold his grandson every six to 12 months and the boy will grow larger in his arms but remain impenetrable and the Afghans will foist canned vegetables on him because they don't stock fresh. He will play Charlie Parker cassettes at night as he goes to sleep and then lay alone in the large bed missing his wife who once had perfect breasts and is he such a terrible person for telling a joke about them at her wake? They had sex and enjoyed sex all 47 years of their marriage, and now he feels the need to tell someone this, but there is no one left who would want to hear it. He will take his orangutan cup with him on the plane and sit at home watching CNN sipping out of its domed head, and this will remind him of his day at the zoo with his family. The mother buckles her son into his car seat, and her father sits next to him in the back. She looks at them in the rearview mirror as she pulls out of the parking lot. Her father has rested his hand on the boy's head. The hand just sits there, not patting or soothing or stroking, but it seems to calm the boy all the same. The father takes a tissue from a box in the back seat and hands it to the boy. The boy pushes the tissue against his face, gluing it to his mucus-covered lip in an effort to please. The grandfather touches his cratered cheek, checking the square white bandage he looks up and meets his daughter's eyes in the mirror. He is without a ready word, and his silence she is happy to interpret as love. 
As the mother drives, she ticks off what remains in the day to do. Dinner is taken care of. They can eat off paper plates. There are no dishes to wash. Her husband can play cribbage with her father while she tends to the boy. He needs a bath before bed. They will all watch some news and then sleep. Tomorrow, she needs to be at work. Tomorrow, she needs to telephone the mad scientist. That's it. That was Kate Walsh reading At the Zoo by Caitlin Horrocks. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Mias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts, and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts and the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station, and Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space.